Lord God, we thank you that you have made us a free people, that we are totally free, free from guilt, free from our past, free from shame. And Lord, in the midst of that freedom, Lord, help us to be, as Paul says, to give ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Lord, would you uh, do a deepening work of grace in the hearts of these young ones? Would you captivate them by who you are? And Holy Spirit, would you meet us as well, that we would be a transformed people through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to welcome you to Faith and to our series in the Gospel According to Chronicles. Uh, we are actually moving towards close to the end. This is the next to the last message in this, uh, this great Gospel account, which was the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, as I've mentioned before, it's about God's history with his people uh, to encourage them that as they came out of the exile and in bondage in Babylon, He's reminding them that regardless of the painful past, regardless of the sins of their forefathers uh, and their captivity, God still had a hope and a future for them. They still were his beloved people. They still were his treasured possession. Uh, and so uh, this unfolding of Chronicles is a reminder to them of that. Next week, uh, our director of youth ministries, uh, Reuben, Amalo is going to come and present us the last, uh, the last message in this series as we kind of move into the Advent season. Uh, but, you know, if you're here and you wonder whether or not uh, God can still love you, can still forgive you because you feel somewhat overwhelmed by your past or by failures or by sin or shame, Chronicles is a great reminder that God's grace is greater than all of our sins. And so I recommend uh, this, this wonderful book to you. One of the great themes in Chronicles is the movement of the people of God with the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, that, that was used as the center of worship as God moved with his people uh, through uh, the journeys in the wilderness uh, to the development of the establishment of the temple of God, the house of God, a permanent place in Jerusalem, the city of God, for the worship of God's people. Uh, and last week, we learned of the, the exact place of where the temple was to be located. Uh, as you might remember, those who were here, David had committed a great sin, uh, counting the military men out of pride. God sent the plague, uh, had destroyed 70,000 military men, and was uh, getting ready to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, the angel of God had his sword lifted and was about ready to come down. The God uh, actually held the, the, uh, the angel from, from, from that judgment and commanded David to establish an altar on the threshing floor of a man by the name of Ornan, the Jebusite. And on that threshing floor, David built an altar, built burnt, uh, create, gave burnt sacrifices, and there was an atonement for sin, and the angel put his sword back in his sheath. But there, David came to realize this is the place of the house of the Lord. Uh, 
What is the right response when you experience the amazing grace of God? Well, it's worship. And in, second, uh, in Chronicles 22, we see this movement uh, to the worship in the house of God, starting with verse 1. And David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails, for the doors of the gates, and for clamps, as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number, for the Sidonians and the Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the Lord, and to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you, shall, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his enemies, all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name and shall be my son. And I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add. You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and irons. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has, not, has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> One of my favorite memories as a child growing up, and I was uh, the fourth born, uh, the second son, I was I had two older sisters and older brother, but when I was about six or seven, I had this memory 
of my parents waking us kids up about four o'clock in the morning while it was still dark, uh, kind of ushering us out to the car as they drove us to spend a day at the beach in Ocean City. We couldn't spend the night, our, we, our family couldn't afford that, but we could spend a long day. And I remember being uh, nestled into that car, uh, still trying to wake up, but I could not go to sleep. I was so excited. And I remember, probably like a lot of you parents uh, hear from your kids when you take them on an adventure, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we, you know, I, I remember hearing my parents say to, to us, probably what we said to our kids, no, but when we get there, you'll know. Don't ask me anymore. But eventually, we all arrived. And I remember as this, we arrived, it was an amazing thing uh, for a little kid to see this massive, unending playground of sand <laughs> and this humongous ocean. And the sun was rising, and I was probably this kid that was giggling and laughing and running and doing cartwheels and saying to myself, I can't believe it. I can't believe we're here. This is greater than I had ever imagined. It is so amazing. Well, as we opened our worship this morning, we opened uh, repeating Psalm 122, which is what's one of the Psalms of Ascents, where God's people uh, would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, one of the annual uh, pilgrimages. And they would sing these different psalms. And this particular psalm, 122, uh, it, 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 was, it was glad, it was, I was, <laughs> oh, please help me. Um, what, did, what did the psalmist say? He said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. My feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Can you hear this enthusiasm? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And you can sense as the pilgrims rise to the, the peak of the hill and they, they saw Jerusalem standing there in the temple. It was so amazing, so exciting when they, when they came into the temple courts, when they came into the gates. It was greater than they could imagine. We are standing in the gates of Jerusalem. So David, at this point, the temple has not been built, okay? It hasn't been established, but we can sense in the way he communicates in this passage the seed of his enthusiasm and his excitement for the creation and the building of the house of worship, the house of his God. And so we see that he is literally caught up in it all. It is uh, David, as if David received a massive vision dump <laughs> uh, from the Spirit of God. He can hardly contain himself. He is so excited. He knows that he's not the one to build uh, in, uh, the temple, but he is the one to prepare for the building. 
And according to the 28th chapter, uh, in verse 19, he's been actually given the design and the architectural plans, if, if, if I could say. Uh, he says, all this, David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding, and all of the details, all the specifications of the plan. Uh, and so David is jazzed. He's enraptured uh, by the whole calling from God. As God uh, in a sense, really commissioned him as the chief uh, architect and the principal funder. Uh, David gathers and commissions the team together, the aliens who were the skilled craftsmen, Solomon, his son, who was the master builder, constructor, and the leaders of Israel who are the project managers, the project engineers, and he assigns them to their particular parts and their tasks in building the house of the Lord. And David gives numerous exhortations to them in preparation for the building. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Arise and work. Set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build. In other words, David is calling the people of God, the craftsmen, the builders, the project managers, to devotion to the building of the house of God. And in this passage, we really see the essential character of worship. And in a sense, we see here God calling us, his people, uh, to be a people preparing ourselves and our hearts for the worship of God as David prepares for the building of the house of worship. And fundamentally, we see really the nature of worship in this passage, the participation in worship, the inclusion in worship, and the motive for worship. The nature of worship. The nature of worship in its core is the devotion to excellence, to bringing excellence, our excellence, uh, to God. Uh, the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. Uh, David wants to do everything in his ability to lift up and to make uh, the greatness of God known among the world. Uh, the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout the lands. For, for David, worship wasn't just to be an in, a, a secluded thing. It was to be a means of witness to the nations of how great our God is. David knew that to do this well, it would cost him much. And we see in verse 14, he says, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. And he talks about the 100,000 talents of gold, and we'll hear more about exactly all of those things next week. But what I want you to see is that it says that he has taken pains. Uh, uh, in uh, the authorized version, it says, it, Now behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house. And, and uh, Eugene, Peterson said, Eugene Peterson says, Look at this. I have gone to a lot of trouble to stockpile materials for the sanctuary of God. And so what we see here is that David, as an act of worship, is really going to great measures and great agony, in a sense, to bring his worship to God. You know, uh, Ornan had actually offered, the guy, the Jebusite on the threshing floor, had offered David, in the last chapter, uh, the, the actual threshing floor and the, the sacrifices for it. He says, here, just take it. But David said, no, I insist on paying the full price, I will not take, I will not 
take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that cost me nothing. And so David knew this about worship. Worship, true worship, is something that costs the worshipers. Uh, and, you know, that's what worship actually means. Worship means to give worth to, uh, to give value to. Uh, Psalm 96 eight says, Ascribe or give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Uh, one of the themes in the Old Testament and the, the giving is that you're not to come in the presence of God without an offering, that this is just part of worship. It's important. Uh, and so you see at the end of Revelation where the angels are surrounding the throne and they're saying, worthy is the lamb that's to be that it was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worship is giving, is giving to our God the things that he is worthy of. Now, God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need our money or our material possessions. Uh, he, he doesn't need any of that, but he desires it. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a proper relationship with us. He, wants, he, he loves the affection of his children. And worship is a means where we come to him and show him our love and our appreciation and our devotion to him as our God, as our Father, as our Savior, as our Lord. And so uh, God doesn't need our worship, but he delights in it. Psalm 22 says, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. When we come together and worship God, he says he's enthroned. And in essence, there is like a God is ascending. He is like lifted up in the midst of the heart praises of his people. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when you come into a great worship experience, and you know that people's hearts are really being poured out and they're connecting with their God, there's a sense that God delights, that there's the smile of God in the place. I remember uh, years ago, we had a, uh, we, we called it a Division of Faith capital campaign as we were uh, expanding for the Baltimore Christian School that we used to be housed here, we used to have as a ministry here. And uh, a foundation came alongside of us in those early days and, and offered a matching grant. If we would raise $125,000, uh, they would match that. They just wanted to see if we were up to it. And so this congregation really stepped up to the plate. And actually, we raised $180,000. But in the process, uh, Sandy Clark, our deacon, uh, acknowledged that this was like an amazing thing to watch people give sacrificially to the causes of God. And he said there was actually one person that literally was a widow's wife. He said a, widow, a widow's mite. He says it was like they pulled these dollars from her mattress. And, uh, and you know, hearing that, I don't know who that person was, but what a, you know, how that touched my heart. And you know, that kind of costly sacrifice to God as just as a pure free will offering is a is a something that really delights God. We we see that Jesus pauses in the temple when the widow gives uh, all that she had. It was a, a heart it was a heart act of worship. You know, Bill talks about uh, in worship, he encourages us to think before we come to get in our giving. 
and you know, that's appropriate. I'm actually in Corinthians 16, Paul encourages uh, worshipers to think before they come to worship and, and, and what they're to give. So it's, so it's thoughtful. It's, it's thinking about our, our contributions. And so a question here is, are we devoted to giving God our excellence? Do we want God's fame and his glory uh, manifested? Do uh, I want him to be exceedingly man- magnificent in my life? Uh, and I want his glory throughout the land. Am I bringing God my best? And is my heart free to give God the worship that he's due? These are some questions uh, for worshipers to be thinking about. But we also see here the participation in worship, uh, the contribution of the worshipers. And so we see that in this passage that David is talking to Solomon. He's talking to uh, the uh, the resident alien uh, craftsman, he's talking to the other leaders. It says, so David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Solomon shall build a house for my name, and he commands the leaders. Uh, David had a role. David played a role in the building of the temple of God. God gave him the plans and the design. He provided the bulk of the materials for the development of the temple out of the massive wealth that Uh, was accumulated in the defeat of God's enemies, and Solomon had a role. Solomon was to really be this master builder. He was endowed by God with great wisdom and insight, and uh, and under his direction, the leaders of Israel were to be these project managers. Uh, We must be careful when we think about David's role uh, in building, that that it wasn't a... um, it wasn't a negative thing that he wasn't allowed to build the temple. Uh, that he, you know, he was a man of war. He was a man of bloodshed. Uh, but we must remember that it was God who gave him his military wisdom and the warring abilities and the skills to defeat God's enemies, which became the source of the treasury to build the temple. Uh, one commentator, Michael Wilcox, said this: the fact is that David was a born fighter, a general, a charismatic leader of men, a destroyer of enemies, and a winner of victories. These are his gifts. Solomon, on the other hand, not only uh, lives in a time of peace, but is gifted with the arts of peace. He is the diplomat, the statesman, the ruler, the judge. Uh, They are gifts given to each one. So different seasons in, in the movements of God's unfolding kingdom. And uh, while it is true that David had it in his heart to build uh, this great house, David did not argue, he did not balk with God, he did not uh, express that he was really, you know, disappointed that God didn't let him do this, but he gave his all to what he could do. He gave all of his heart and all of his soul to the task that he could do. David never got to see the temple built, the temple that he saw in the designs. Uh, but he knew it was going to uh, happen, and he, was, he took great pleasure that he could do his part. Um, I remember the speech, actually it was the last speech that Dr. Martin Luther King uh, gave in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and it's called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And in that speech, Dr. King was reminiscing about uh, possible other times that he could have lived in his life. 
and uh, he talks about, you know, could have lived during the time of Egypt with God's children taking flight out of Egypt. Uh, yet he would say this refrain, but I wouldn't stop there. That that's not the time that he wanted to live. And then he says, but then move on by Greece and take my, and I, and I take my mind to Mount Olympus and I see Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Euripides and Aristophanes assembled around the Parthenon or the Roman Empire through the various emperors, the day of the Renaissance or moving forward to the day of Martin Luther and tacking the thesis on the Wittenberg church door or the day of Abraham Lincoln and the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. But he says, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, he says, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. He went on to elo eloquently describe the horrible injustices, the challenges, and the call to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness in the pursuit of justice. And he said this, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, what a great speech and what a great uh, vision and what great principles that he gave himself to the fullest level of his sense of calling before God. And that is really what David is doing here. He is giving himself to the fullest level of his particular calling uh, before God. And, um, and so we see that uh, Paul, as we heard from Romans 8, that every single person in the kingdom has particular gifts. You have a particular calling. Uh, you has, and and Paul, Paul exhorts believers to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. We are a gathered people as we come together and worship, as we get anchored in the truths and as we meet with God, and then we are scattered into the world, into the marketplace where we are to live out uh, faith in, in, in society. But each one of us has gifts uh, and each one of us are members of one another. We're one body, but we're di different. And, and, and so we, we need to find out what our particular calling is, and we need to be encouraged to pursue that and to use it. Some people have speaking gifts. Some people have service gifts. Some people have uh, leadership and governing gifts. And we, in the body of Christ, needs those gifts in order to create and to be the kind of beautiful bride that God wants to exalt his name in the world. If you're looking to understand more of your particular part, out on the connections table, there's a, there's a, a personal strength survey and a gifts analysis, just an initial thing. But if you'd like to learn more about maybe your particular fit in the kingdom, uh, please fill that out and uh, send that into the office, and we can uh, have someone walk with you to help you know your better fit. But then we see the inclusion in worship, the invitation to guests. And so uh, we see that David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for the building of the house of God. And I found 
I found this initial verse, this lead verse that begins the whole development of the building of the temple of God to be a very interesting verse. Uh, that what is mentioned here are the resident aliens who were incorporated into the building of the house of God. Um, you know, when you think about the Old Testament, a lot of times we think uh, the Old Testament is mainly just focused on uh, Israel, uh, the children of Abraham, while the New Testament, uh, it moves to the Gentiles, the rest of the world. But you would be mistaken if you don't see regularly and constantly God's theme of his care and his love and his inclusion for the aliens and the immigrants and the foreigners into the whole Old Testament. Uh, last week, I mentioned that Ornan, uh, where the threshing floor, the place where the temple was to be established, was Ornan the Jebusite. He was a non-Israelite. He, he was a person that lived in the land that was not part of the Israel, but it was God's decision that it was going to be his threshing floor that became the gift of this offering. And so it was a foreigner from Israel. And God made a statement when he did that. God is making a statement about incorporating the resident aliens here. Um, and so we see a special place in the economy of God, in the scriptures of God, for the aliens of the land. In Leviticus 19, uh, we find that God gives this law. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not ill-treat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's a very powerful calling. That is the gospel, by the way. We have the gospel of how God's people are to be treating those who would be considered immigrants or aliens or outsiders. And the purpose is, is that we're all outsiders to God at one point, and we are called to be the welcoming love of God for all people. Uh, you know, this is actually built into the court, into the Solomon's temple itself, by the way. In Solomon's temple, uh, you'll see at the bottom here, the court of the Gentiles, the main uh, temple, uh, and we, we don't have time to go through all the details of this, but I just want you to see that in the structure, in the construction of the temple of God, the house of God, was the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was a place that was a sacred place for, for people, the Gentiles from the nations, to come into Jerusalem and to come to worship God. This was a protected space. The one time that Jesus got infuriated in his ministry, uh, when he chased out the money changers, uh, was because they had made God's house of prayer for many nations into a den of robbers. And you see, this was protected space. And so right in the construction, in the uh, architecture of the house of worship was a place for people from the nations to come and to be able to come to worship God and to know this God and to be actually, ultimately, to become a member of God's household. And so, you know, this past week, uh, Stephanie Rollins-Blake uh, had addressed some of the concerns and the fears 
uh, that many uh, residents uh, from immigration and refugee uh, populations in Baltimore are feeling uh, from uh, this, this recent election and uh, sought to provide assurances that Baltimore would continue to be a city of welcome. Uh, some were upset with her statement and felt like uh, she was being uh, took a position that was unlawful. And she said, we are living in a, at a time when the immigration laws are broken and everyone recognizes that. But for believers, while we are called to respect and to uh, obey reasonable and just immigration policy and laws, God's people must always discern uh, the difference between God's laws and man's laws. And we must always live in God's laws, come what may. And so uh, we see that in light of God's covenant uh, promise, his incorporation as to, uh, resident aliens in the kingdom and the, the building of the house of worship and his passionate protection uh, and his anger when residents are violated, I would suggest that we could uh, have a sign that would say immigrants, aliens, and refugees welcome and wanted here. And black folks, too, and Hispanics, and Asians, and Africans, Native Americans, and even white people, too. All sinners are welcome and wanted in this place. <laughs> well, finally, we see the motive for worship, the goodness of God. In verse 18, it says, Is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord now set your heart and mind and on to seek the Lord. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord our God. Now, what David is concluding here is uh, his encouragement and exhortation for the leaders to engage, to arise and build, to engage the work. But the foundation, the motive, what is he's he's calling them to understand is that God has been with them. God has been faithful to them. He has given them success. He has. He's allowed them to have peace in the land. They, he's reinforcing God's promised fulfillment and his goodness to them. And that becomes the driver for why they should build and why they should worship God. But the principal grace that drove David, that catapulted David into organizing the construction of the house of God, it flows immediately after the sacrifice is received, the gifts of forgiveness and atonement is given, and David is now experiencing God's grace in the most profound way in his entire life. And it is out of that profound sense of God's goodness and grace and forgiveness that he begins this great enterprise to, so, to start to prepare for the building of the temple. It was the greatest gift, but about 800 years before this incident with David, there was at the same place a reference in Genesis chapter 22 where God commanded Abraham to take his son, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Mount Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And of course, this was a quite an astounding and awesome and hard thing to even comprehend that God would ask, ask Abraham to do this with his only son. But Abraham was a man of faith, and somehow he believed, it tells us in Hebrews, 
that uh, even if he took and slayed his son, that God could raise him from the dead uh, and fulfill his promises. And so Abraham was ready to, he raised his knife over his son. And as he was ready to slay his son, uh, God intervened, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And uh, it says that the Lord provided for them a ram in the thicket, and uh, they called this place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it says in uh, the 14th verse, that on this mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And what we find is in the third chapter of Second Chronicles, when it repeats the place of where the temple was to be established, this verse, it says, it says, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So this place is now called Mount Moriah. The only other time in the scriptures that Mount Moriah is mentioned is in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. And so almost a thousand years beforehand, you see this event where God, in his grace, held back the sacrifice of Isaac's son, where God, in his grace now, has withheld the destruction over Jerusalem. And it was at this place, this Mount Moriah, which became the place where the temple was to be established. And Mount Moriah, a thousand years later, became the mount where a savior was sacrificed. This is an amazing thing when you start seeing the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Uh, I think it's a sobering thing. When we come to worship, you know, we talked about that we come thinking about what we can bring to this great God. But here's the thing. We, we, we must never, ever lose sight of the fact that the greatest gift that has been brought into the place of worship is not from us. It is our God, you know, he says he held the, the knife from Abraham. He held the sword from the angel. But on Calvary, on Mount Moriah, there in Jerusalem, God let the full force of his sword and his knife descend upon his son that you and I could be sons and daughters. So when we come to worship, we need to live in the flow of that we are in a place of great sacrifice the greatest gift wasn't what we bring. It's what our God, our Father, has brought for us. And so Isaac, you know, Isaac Watts, he sings this, uh, uh, this verse in his uh, The Prince of Glory Died. He says, We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so as we think about worship, let's make sure that we think about what our God has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are struck silent, really stunned to silence when we think about uh, Jerusalem, as we think about the temple, as we think about this great sacrifice that was ultimately given uh, for us. Lord, uh, we thank you that you withheld the knife 
from Isaac and that the angel withheld the sword over Jerusalem. But Lord, we, we uh, have a hard time comprehending that you would take all of your perfections and all of your wisdom and all of your righteousness and justice and all of your love and you would bring it into your son and Lord you would sacrifice your son that we might know you Lord help us to live in that help us to worship you with all that we have and we commit this to you in Jesus name amen let's stand together I don't see our musician in the house so I'm just gonna close you with a benediction and now to him was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. Amen.